Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. You can go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Hey, my name is Luke, and I have the honor of serving here as one of the pastors at Mount Zion. We want to welcome everyone that's joining us online this morning. Pastor Jason and I had the privilege of meeting Cindy this morning, who came in. She said, I'm a part of this family. I've been not missed a single Sunday in over two years. And we were like, that's awesome. That's great. Which we thought was strange because we'd never seen her before. And then she informed us that she lives in Michigan, and she just had to come and be a part of this morning. So we want to welcome everyone that is joining us online this morning, and we love you, and we're so thankful for you. Well, I am back from the land of the living, so thankful for Pastor Keith for uh, last week jumping in uh, as I kind of endured and battled the stomach bug. Jessica said it was man flu, but it was not. (laughs) And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. If you have your Bibles, if you will join me in Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to read verses 1 through 4, and then we are going to immediately uh, gather in Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 12, where we're going to read the first 18 verses. Isaiah chapter 42, uh, beginning in verse 1. Look at my servant. Whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. And even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. Then Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse one. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some of the Pharisees saw them do it and protested. Look at your disciples. They're breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. So Jesus said to them, snitches get stitches. He did not say that. (laughs) Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and His companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is greater than the temple. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For the Son of Man is the Lord, even on the Sabbath. 
And then Jesus went over to their synagogue where he noticed a man with a deformed hand. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, does the law permit a person to work by healing on the Sabbath? They were hoping that he would answer by saying yes so they could bring charges against him. And he answered, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than that of a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to them, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored just like the other one. And then the Pharisees called a meeting to plot how to kill Jesus. But Jesus knew what they were planning, so he left the area and many people followed him. And he healed all the sick among them, but he warned not to reveal who he was. And this fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah concerning him. Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. And I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Cornelius planning in his book, Not the Way Things Are Meant to Be. He tells the story of a young immigration lawyer who was driving an expensive and a fancy car. Noticing a traffic jam up ahead, he took a side road. And as often happens in cases such as this, the further he traveled down the side road, the more lost he became and the more ominous the road became and the more narrow the road became. Once again, as circumstances would have it, his car began to have trouble and it broke down. As he called the tow truck driver and awaited for the tow truck to arrive, he noticed in his rearview mirror a young group of men beginning to gather. The men saw a problem and they also saw an opportunity. They desired to do much bodily harm to this man and to remove the car from his possession. About the time this arrived and the young men began to surround the expensive vehicle, the tow truck driver arrived. He noticed immediately the leader of the gang and he approached him and he said, man, you may not know this. But this guy, he's supposed to be able to wait on a tow truck without having to wonder if he was going to be bodily injured. And you may not know this, but I'm supposed to be able to do my job. And then he shook his head and he looked at his feet and he said, this is just not the way things are meant to be. If we had to summarize the last three years of our lives, I think that that's how we would phrase it. We would just kind of look down and shake our heads and say, man, this just isn't the way things are supposed to be. The last several weeks, we have been walking through our culture and we've been examining it through the lens of the kingdom of God with the purpose of helping us develop a vocabulary, a language, also a proper perspective, because many of us, if you were like me, the last three years have just been exhausting. And you've just not had words, and it has been hard to see how God is moving and working and how he's going to redeem. The fact that we have walked through the last three years of social unrest, of political upheaval, 
frustration after frustration, and we have not gained a single inch. I mean, what has changed? What is different? Should in itself reveal to us that something is terribly wrong. But in each and every one of us, we have a desire, just something deep down on the heart level that tells us that things are supposed to be very, very different. So in regard to how is the kingdom's version of justice different from how we look at justice, how we perceive justice, how we look for justice, how it is different than what is commonly called and referred to as justice today. And how do we pursue this in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our families? And even on a deeper level, what is it that we really want for our communities? You see, the desire for justice and a better way of living in itself, it is good. But it's been distorted. And to be honest with you, I don't think that we often go the right way of pursuing it. But on the upside, we have become more cognizant, more aware of the life that we live in the society that we call here and now. We have become awakened. We see poverty. We see racism. We see classism. We see crime. We see corporate corruption. We see tyranny. We see looting in the streets. We see violence. And each and every one of us, our hearts have been moved and we have been stirred by what is happening in Ukraine. But these are the mountains of injustice. Just below the surface, in the valleys, it goes unnoticed. It goes unaddressed. You see, in the valleys of justice is, is lies, it's fudged reports. It's the avoidance of taxes. It's relational dysfunction. It's compromised values. It's abandoned marital vows. It's the forfeiting of parental responsibilities. It's the abandonment of the innocent. You see, just below the surface, it is the micro effects of injustice that is running rampant in our communities and in ourselves. And it is this injustice that is socially oftentimes acceptable, explainable, excusable, the communities that the injustice that dwells in our community and oftentimes in, in ourselves. I was probably seven years old when my parents introduced me to the glorious yet frustrating game of whack-a-mole. Are you familiar with this game? If not, do not familiarize yourself with it. It's this game where the player quickly approaches this board that holes exist in it. 
and you feed your coins into the dispenser and, and a mole emerges from just beneath the surface. And armed with a mallet in hand and fire and fury in your eyes and passion in your heart, you take a whack and you strike this mole squarely in the head and you play this game for about 60 seconds and what you come to learn is that every time you strike one, another one quickly comes just from below the surface. So you take another whack at it, and maybe it's just out of arm's length. And then the same mole that you hit earlier, it suddenly comes back. And once again, after about 60 seconds, the player, a cynical smile stretches across their face as they lay down the mallet and they ask the question, what is the point? I think this is where we are when it comes to justice in our culture. Every activist picks up the mallet and with fire and passion in them, they begin to strike the first form of injustice that emerges from just below the surface. And they continue to play for about 60 seconds only to realize that every time they whack that injustice, there is another form that quickly approaches, sometimes just out of their reach. And eventually, every activist lays down the mallet. Compassion fatigue sets in. They become jaded, disillusioned. What difference did I make? What difference did this make? So they lay down the mallet and they walk away from the game. The church, we can't quit. We can't lay down the mallet. But we gotta stop handing it to the next player. The next program the next policy, the next movement, the next politician. It is the responsibility of the church. It is the priests that are called to make a difference. And how do we do that? I think we have to, we have to gain better strategy. And that will only happen when we gain a proper vision, a vision of what the world can be, what the world is supposed to be, when we all agree that it's not supposed to be like this. And if we don't gain a proper perspective, if we don't have that vision, then we are like children sitting at the dinner room table looking at a thousand puzzle pieces, all separated, but we don't have a picture on the front of the box. So we don't know what we're putting together. If we're going to gain a proper perspective, and if we're going to have the best picture of what life here on earth is supposed to be, then we have to start in the garden. 
If we wanna know what the kingdom of God is to look like, it begins in the garden. You see, in the garden, every human, regardless of their culture or their class or their circumstance or their condition, every human knows that they were stamped in the image of God. Everybody knows in the garden that they are image bearers. And differences in the garden serve to be complementary, meaning that apart from a relationship with you, even though you're different, I am not reaching my full potential. You see, in the garden, there is no limp. But there is no swagger. There is no hiding. There is no hoarding. There is no comparison. There is no competition. There is no hubris. There is no ego in the garden. In the garden, we know that we exist for the benefit of God and one another. This is the problem when we allow our culture and our media and our society to define what true justice is. In its very nature and foundation, the definition of social justice is to address the social condition, the state of being, to address oppression and economic disproportion. But anybody that has ever been married for more than three months, who has ever tried to raise a kid, knows that you can't change nobody. In other words, if you are simply trying to change the state of being without addressing the heart of the individual, It will only lead to frustration. You see, the very nature of justice is rooted in the foundational truth that it is always relational. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're looking at how broken society is, how messed up our world is. And you're thinking, Luke, this is idealistic. This is rose-colored glasses. There's no way. And that's because you have put your trust in your faith in systems and in government and in policies and in laws and in procedures. But you can't have a relationship with a government. You can't have a relationship with a policy or with a law. So when we turn and we place our hope in a politician, or a government, or a policy, or a procedure, or a law, then all we are doing are setting ourselves up for frustration, for letdown, for disappointment. And eventually we lay down the mallet, God help us, and we say, what's the point? 
You see, if we lose the vision of the garden, of the kingdom, we lose the vision for justice. Justice, like love, is defined by God, so therefore there needs to be no complementary word added to it. When we hear the word justice, we think about kingdom justice, biblical justice. And that form of justice takes care and eliminates all injustice. But when we divide it and go after one separate entity, we're missing the peace and we're we're complicating it. Oftentimes, our pursuit for justice, it only creates more injustice, which is frustrating, isn't it? See, in the Hebrew, the word righteousness and injustice they were never meant to be treated separately. It's what grammar refers to as a hendiatus, meaning that the word is so robust, it is so big, that it actually needs a, another word that runs in tandem, that doesn't distract or doesn't take away. It actually complements it. It helps explain it. In other words, you can't be righteous and ignore injustice. But you cannot pursue justice apart from righteousness. And we see this all over the place. We have people who stand and they proclaim that it is right and that we should be righteous and we should be holy, all the while ignoring the needs of the poor in our community, the disenfranchised, the orphan or the widow. In the Hebrew mind, you can't pursue righteousness and ignore injustice. But in the same way, we have people who scream to the top of their lungs about justice, all the while ignoring what it means to be right and righteous and loving and kind and submissive. You see, in the Hebrew, when God refers to righteousness and justice, he's saying this is the standard, this is the plumb line this is the foundation. This is how we know that it is square. And as I mentioned before, righteousness and justice, it is never in the Hebrew mind apart from relationship, meaning that we cannot be right. We cannot be just in isolation. We are called to pursue this in a community, as a community. You see, righteousness cannot happen apart from the relationship. Justice cannot happen apart from the relationship. That's why we can't find justice in policies and procedures and laws because you can't have a relationship with those entities, with those things. You see, righteousness describes 
the actions between us where justice describes the systems and the structures in which righteousness can occur. The problem, as I see it, is that we have separated the two. Outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, Yahweh has a conversation with Abraham. And Yahweh appears to Abraham in, in three visitors. And as the three visitors are talking just on the outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, they begin to ask the question, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? What they are about to do, they're about to create a vast separation between the people of Abraham and the people of the city. In Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 17, I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. One word. And then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked, for Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him in our very DNA as humans created in the image of God. There is this desire, this pursuit of righteousness and justice. And when it is not achieved and when it does not become a reality, frustration always sets in. But it doesn't take long for humanity to mess this up. And the people who were once called and known to be pursuers of righteousness and justice, by the time we get to the prophets, we have messed it up. And there is nothing that separates us from the city, from Sodom, from Gomorrah, in Isaiah chapter five, verse seven, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord's heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. And he expected the crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. Amos chapter six, verse 12, but that's how foolish you are when you turn justice into poison and the sweet fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Isaiah chapter 10, verse two, they deprive the poor of justice and deny the rights of the needy among my people. They prey on the widow and they take advantage of the orphan. Isaiah 59, verse four, no one cares about being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and they give birth to sin. Isaiah 59 verses 9 through 10. So there's no justice among us and we know nothing about right living. We look for light, but we only find darkness. We look for bright skies, but walk in gloom. We grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. Even the brightest noontime, we stumble as though it were dark. We are the living, but we are like all dead. 
Isaiah 59, verses 12 through 13, for our sins are piled up before God and testify against us. Yes, we know that sinners we are. We know we have rebelled and we have denied the Lord. We have turned our backs on God. We know how unfair and how oppressive we have been, carefully planning our deceitful lies. And then verse 14, our courts oppose the righteous and justice is nowhere to be found. Truth stumbles in the street and honesty has been outlawed. Yes, truth is gone and anyone who renounces evil is attacked. The Lord looked and he was displeased to find no justice. This word displeased, it doesn't mean that he was angry. It means that he was wounded. He was hurt. He's describing us. He's describing these past few years. So he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. And in the West, people will respect the name of the Lord and in the East, they will glorify him for they will come like a raging flood tide driven by the breath of the Lord. And when I read this portion in Isaiah, set up straight because finally with God's strong hand he is going to make things right righteousness justice it's going to be restored with just a breath and I look for an activist I looked for a mallet. I looked for power to come in force. I looked for heaven to open the gates and the flood to wash over us. But that's not what we got. You see, Isaiah 42, we don't get an activist holding a mallet. It's going to reset the game. We got a servant. Isaiah 42, verse 1, look at my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged and he will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the entire earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. So I began to ask the question, if what we're all looking for is a strong activist, but what God sends instead is a servant. What is the difference? What does that look like? You see, an activist are always motivated by something on the outside of them, something external. Where a servant, they are motivated by something that is internal, something on the inside. I will put my spirit in him. 
You see, an activist, their disposition is often anger. That of a servant, their disposition is that of joy. He will be my delight. You see, the activist, his voice is loud and it demandings. It, it draws lines. It creates ultimatums. It talks about being on the right side of history. It forces everybody to pick a side, to choose a side. But the servant is quiet and subtle and persuasive and humble and gentle. See, a servant never draws attention to themselves. He just simply goes around serving one person at a time. You see, he won't stop. He can't stop. You can't beat him, you can't outlive him, and you can't outwork him. An activist believes injustice is rooted in systems and in policies and in kings and kingdoms. But a servant believes that injustice lies in powers behind the kings and behind the governments that oftentimes the kings and the governments don't even believe in. You see, the activist looks for political solutions where the servant knows that justice only comes through relationship. And if a people who were called by my name they will only humble themselves and repent and cry out. Maybe, just maybe, God will heal their land. You see, the model for justice in the Christian mind, it is always rooted in an exodus that is followed by a festival Anytime you see God calling an enslaved people out, it is always accompanied by a festival, a feast. It's always accompanied by a relationship, by a table, by conversation. This is why Jesus, when we see in the gospel that we read earlier, this man who had the withered hand. Jesus relocates time and place, sacred time and sacred place, saying, I am the Sabbath and I am the temple. What is he doing? He's taking the two things that the poor and the crippled and the outcast that they were excluded from, and he takes it right to them until he restores one that is broken to reflect that that has always been the way it was supposed to be. Tomorrow morning, you and I we will walk into a place that injustice abounds. And we will want to be a prophet and we will want to speak to it. And we will want to yell something that is pithy, that'll settle the argument. But church, we have to be smarter. 
And I know that this is not popular. And I'll get an email, and you can send that. Just a reminder, uh, Pastor Keith at Mount Zion Wesleyan. <laughs> The systems and the structures, they're above your pay grade. Your impact at best will be minimal. But because that has always been our pursuit, it has always led to frustration, disappointment, and disillusionment. And if we're called to play the game smarter, what does that look like? You wanna change injustice? You wanna speak to poverty? The outcast, broken, forgotten. You want to bring the kingdom of God. You want to be the change. Starts tomorrow morning with the first person you see. Starts one person at a time. One right decision at a time. You see, the opposite of injustice is not freedom. Because injustice has a way of lingering and following us around generation to generation. The opposite of injustice is goodness. You want to change? You want to be changed? You want to see change? starts tomorrow morning in your first meeting. First person you see. One decision at a time. One person at a time. You do the next right thing. Don't quit. God help us, don't give up. Don't ask what's the point. It's too big, what am I gonna do? God, we need you. God, we look around this world and we ask the question, what can be done? So we retire to just sitting and waiting, waiting for the clouds to part and for you to come and to make Make right what is wrong. And in doing so, we miss the beauty that exists in the ashes. So God, may we bring righteousness and justice to our every day, to our every moment, to everyone we meet. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.